One of the phrases you hear often in forest monasteries is that the practice is about building parami. It's a useful term. It refers to developing the spiritual perfections or spiritual qualities uh, that grow in our heart through the practice. And you might say become stored in our heart, our mind. <clears throat> so that somebody who's uh, ripe, mature for understanding the truth, the Dhamma that leads to liberation is somebody whose parami are well developed or complete. They talk about the Lord Buddha himself had perfected the 30 paramis, the so 10 paramis on three levels, ordinary parami, uh, upaparami, paramatabharami. Teachers often don't go into such a detailed uh, analysis of parami. As I said, tend to talk about parami in a, in a general way. Because, <coughs> because it's almost um, generally understood that uh, parami refers to all the different qualities. Uh, if you outline them in, as in the books, the ten paramis can go through them, describe them. They're not so much teaching commenting on a particular method you develop this parami in this way it's more just pointing to the growth of the mind through the practice how all these different qualities are coming up and they're linked they arise together in different ways they support each other Ajahn Chah and many other teachers used to say if you don't have any obstacles in the practice then parami doesn't develop. So actually the nourishment for our parami building is the problems, the obstacles we meet. <coughs> just coming into the robes, into the monastic form. Already you've had to have cultivated a certain amount of parami. Whether you believe in uh, birth and rebirth, the uh, cycle of birth and death and past lives and future lives, or whether you just look at your own life in this life since you've been born, Obviously to get to the point where you 
make a decision, a commitment to come into a monastery and train. That means there have to be certain strengths and qualities in the mind that um, make you willing to take that step because it's obviously not an easy decision for many people. It's quite an unusual one in our society. Just coming into the monastery, they say, is the practice of nekamabharami, <clears throat> practice of renunciation. You're giving up the more normal way of the world, which is accumulation, gaining wealth, fame and fortune, possessions, interesting, pleasant experiences, and so on. It's the more normal way human beings live. When you come into a monastery, you're giving up much of that. You're renouncing that kind of habit of mind to always accumulate more. We give up money, we give up <coughs> uh, the rights over property and different forms of wealth. And we, we do that straight away when you take on the precepts of a monk. That's also embodied in sila parami. Renunciation is more pointing more deeply into the mind, the mind that underlines many of our precepts. Precepts are more a sense of personal discipline. And you're there often rules, guidelines, practices that we are obliged to do, to follow. It's about disciplining yourself. Underlying it is sense of renunciation, being willing to give up, give away material wealth and the uh, desire to accumulate, so giving up the basic craving and attachment that underlies the cause of our suffering as human beings. And they say somebody who can't stay in a monastery very long, often one way of looking at that is to say, well, maybe the nekamaparami is not yet well developed. Some people literally just want more comfort because the monastery, monastic life is so simple. Simplicity, uh, moderation is, is the flavor of the monastic life. So some people find and just need more, more comfort, more things around them. They have to be practicing on a level where they're practicing in comfort so they go home. Might still practice Buddhism, have faith in the teachings, meditate, keep the five precepts perhaps, but maybe not yet ready to give up uh, on the level of a Buddhist monk, a bhikkhu. Much of the monastic training is directly 
encouraging us and helping us to build parami, which is why it's often not talked about so much in detail. So it's just happening all the time. It's just obvious right, to keep this and follow this lifestyle, follow the rules, keep putting effort into meditation, keep living in this way. You're necessarily going to be developing barami. The first barami they talk about when in lists of the ten paramis, usually it's generosity. Even that, sometimes we might overlook and think, mm, now I'm a monk, I don't have any money or wealth, I can't make donations or give gifts. But obviously it's uh, something you can still practice as a monk. Practice of generosity, it comes from generosity of heart. So sometimes we do actually give small material gifts, we share things, we share food. In a monastery like this we're well supported so we share a lot of our requisites and gifts that people kindly give us with those who are less fortunate. We send to the homeless and to the soup kitchens of Melbourne and so on. We sometimes share amongst each other in the way the system that Ajahn Chah taught us and gave us. We have a central store of requisites and we share them with those in the community who need them as on a as needed basis. We can request things. Sometimes we see somebody needs something, we might share what we know is available. So sharing and practice of generosity is still very much at the heart of our lifestyle. We share our time. We help look after the the lodgings, the buildings, the grounds, keep things clean both for ourselves and for the laity. We obviously practice dana on the inner level of the giving, say a bayadana, giving of forgiveness and fearlessness in the sense a monastery is a place where you can come and be without fear that you're going to be harmed by the resident monks. This is why we see this year so many animals coming into the monastery every evening because it's a place where we don't hunt or kill or harm animals. They sense that, whereas outside in the forest they're always getting hunted and chased. <coughs> Lay people come here and feel relaxed because they know they're not going to get harassed or meet with um, aggression or situations that would make them feel threatened because it's a place of safety and forgiveness. But that's a practice in itself. Obviously sometimes we're provoked or tempted to be more aggressive if somebody provokes us. We have to consciously practice a bayadana, giving of forgiveness, practice patience, kanti parami, practice metta, metta parami, 
You see, in the course of our practice, the paramis are developing all the time together, supporting each other. can't separate the paramis out from each other. Like when you talk about dana paramis, so you talk about abhayadana, the giving of safety or giving of fearlessness to others. And what does that involve? It involves giving up or giving away your anger or more aggressive harmful tendencies. <coughs> Ajahn Chah used to use this term, he said, um, when you get angry, give it away, give away your anger as dana. It doesn't mean indulge it and you know, take it out on someone, and actually say or do something to harm somebody. What he was referring to is the mind, state of mind, that mental state of anger or ill will, cruelty. You give it up from the mind, you abandon it. <clears throat> you might call that the practice of dana or metta or panya or sila. In so many ways they're all pointing to the same thing. The paramis are helping us to train our mind to give up the more unwholesome states that cause us suffering, lead us to make karma with others, cause others suffering as well. But you can see, if you're reflecting on this, just mental states that are unwholesome, unskillful, it's a form of giving, it's just to give, up, give them up from the mind, you abandon them. And the highest form of giving is obviously Dhamma, and sharing what understanding you have with others. Other members of the community, <clears throat> the laity who come to visit, and so on. Sometimes sharing the Dhamma doesn't even mean saying any words. It can be just through being, practicing the Dhamma, through an example, being restrained, peaceful, putting effort into your meditation, putting effort into following the different practices of the day. Uh, when it's time to work or do chores, you do it diligently. When it's time to meditate in a group meeting, you come. All of that is a form of dana, helping others, supporting others, just as much as giving a dhamma talk or a formal teaching. With sila barami, so as monks, it's the practice of the vinaya. Obviously, it's something we all have to learn in the lay life. We never had such a refined and detailed set of rules and guidelines to follow. So, for most lay people, they can't help but follow desires, moods, much of the time. <coughs> we often. Slave people even 
fool ourselves into thinking that's true freedom, to be able to do what you want, when you want, in the way you want, and so on. But as we come to practice, we realize more that following your moods doesn't lead to true peace and happiness or wisdom. Often leads us to more confusion and suffering. When you come into the monastery, your silabharami is being developed. You have to give up to the to the vinaya, the training rules, the discipline. <coughs> In the early days of Buddhism, say the first half of the Buddha's life, once he started teaching, maybe twenty years, there was no formal vinaya. It was informal because you might say the sila parami of the early disciples of the Buddha was well developed, established. They just kind of naturally understood what is right and wrong, appropriate, inappropriate in terms of behavior. They naturally lived very simply in a harmless way. And many of them were already Aryapugalas, enlightened beings. <coughs> But as the Sangha grew in number, more people came in, obviously, you might say the level of the parami of each individual maybe not sustained at that uh, initial intake of disciples, not on the same level. So people have more kilesas, more cravings, more attachments. So gradually over time, the Buddha had to start laying down training rules, guidelines. So by the end of his life, we have the Vinaya, which we still study and practice today. This is a certain kind of barami, isn't it? You're learning to discipline yourself, following a set of rules that govern your behavior, your external behavior. <coughs> It takes effort, it takes understanding, motivation, and so on to do that. Some of the rules, especially in the beginning, can be seem fiddly or annoying. Sometimes they don't seem to have much point. Sometimes they seem to take up a lot of time because they're new. We have to keep remembering them, following them. You have to keep reminding yourself of the value of them. You're training your external behavior, and that means developing your certain qualities, composure, restraint. But this is helping to you to develop a more subtle awareness and mindfulness of the mind itself inside. If we didn't have the Vinaya training on the outside, <coughs> be very difficult for most people to really see their minds and come to enough clarity and have enough peace to weed out the causes of suffering, the cravings, the attachments that are constantly conditioning us. The Vinaya is a useful vehicle, but it requires commitment, discipline. That's something we often have to learn. We learn sila parami until it becomes just normal for us. In the beginning, it's something unusual, new. 
but as you practice, then maybe over time you appreciate the Vinaya more and more, how it, by following it, it prevents you from creating suffering for yourself and others, helps your mind to be more peaceful, more content within itself. And as you appreciate it more, it just becomes more natural, more easy. <clears throat> it's something like just eating in the morning, maybe you're only eating once a day in your bowl. In the beginning that might be something new that you have to put effort in. Maybe in the evening, if you've been putting forth effort, walking meditation or working or something, you might feel peckish, feel hungry. It would be nice to have food. But we have our training, we have to wait until the next day to eat. We don't just go to the, a kitchen and pick up food when we want, we have to eat at the proper time. We have a, a proper way that we receive food, distribute the food. We meditate before we eat. All of this you can say is Vinaya training. Inwardly we might have desires coming up, we might be very hungry, just want to gorge ourselves sometimes, but we have to learn how to be patient with that. So Kanti Parami, patience, endurance, helps to help us to get through sometimes when we're feeling hungry or tired or weak. And I have a saying in Thailand like, Kanti, as we know, Kanti Parami is the supreme destroyer or incinerator of defilements. They compare Kanti Parami to like, you know, the rubbish incinerator that burns up all the rubbish you put into it, just leaves a little bit of ash at the end, nothing left. They say, use Kanti to burn up the defilements, don't let the defilements burn you up. Meaning if you leave your craving and an attachment undealt with, unaddressed, you don't practice with it, well it will burn you up. Rather than using the Baramis to burn up the, the craving and attachment that you have in the mind, it just burns you up, so you're constantly hot, agitated, caught into states of suffering. So just something as simple as <clears throat> eating one meal a day at an appointed time, you're practicing the paramis and you're training yourself to let go of different desires. So when the desire, say, to eat at a, another time pops up, you just remind yourself, mm, the rule is I eat at this one time. I have to wait, to be patient. We do have certain ways to offset. We have drinks. We can uh, fill our stomach even with water if we want, as much water as we want. But you practice patience and you're building parami and then over time it becomes normal. And the reason the Buddha stipulated this rule, one of the reasons he said is because it's healthy to eat in the morning and just one meal a day. The reason that rule came about is because as the Sangha grew, you know, in the beginning, most monks just naturally went for their arms round in the morning, collected food. <clears throat> As most meditators will know, to eat in the morning, it's 
healthy and suitable for meditation so that in the rest of the day you're feeling light, you've digested your food, meditation is easier. Most of the earlier generation of monks understood that. But as time went on, some monks, because there was no, not yet any rule about when you can go on arms round, some monks thought, hmm, the food you get in the evening is actually better, it's tastier. As we know in the lay life, people tend to put more effort into cooking in the evening. You know, nobody goes to a restaurant at nine, eight o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning. You might go for a quick breakfast or something. If you go out for, to a restaurant or you go to someone's house for a meal, it's nearly always dinner in the evening. So that's when the best food's around. So the cravings, the desires of monks meant they would go out in the evening looking for food. But that brought associated problems. You're walking in the dark, monks would fall into ditches and canals, trip over cows that were wandering around the street, and even scare people. Till finally, <clears throat> one monk waiting in the back of somebody's house hoping to get some food one evening. There was a thunderstorm, a lady come out washing her dishes, having cooked some food. He was waiting there with his bowl to get some food in the thunder lightning, lit him up. And she was so startled, she thought it was some kind of devil or ghost come to haunt her, complained to the Buddha. So the Buddha introduced that rule that we have to eat before midday, stop monks going for arms round in the evening. Even then, when the Buddha laid down different rules, you know, some monks, even though they had followed the Buddha into the robes out of faith in him and trusted in his wisdom and compassion, they still weren't happy. You know, just like when we come into the robes, some of the rules we're maybe not happy about, that we have to do this or not do that. The Venerable Udayi had already been practicing many years. He was upset that the Buddha put an end to going arms round at any time, said you can only eat in the morning. He said, you know, he had this <clears throat> still subtle sense of self, self-righteousness, you know, put all this effort into my practice. I've come here, I've given up so much, committed to the practice, and now the Buddha won't let me go arms round in the evening. So he's upset. But he had sila barami, he didn't go and make a big fuss about it or argue. But in his mind, he was upset. He wasn't happy with this new rule. But he went off to practice. Later on meditating, he came to a realization. He was thinking how much the Buddha had helped him. You know, even though he's still not enlightened, he had already changed so much since he first began practicing the Buddha's teachings new virtues that weren't there in his mind before had come up. He was more peaceful than before, wiser than before, had more compassion than before. Reflecting like that, he realized, hmm, the Buddha's teachings, this training, the Vinaya and the Dhamma, has helped me. I should really appreciate it more. So his discontent with the rules past faded the appreciation of the, the teaching and the way of practice came up to replace it. 
as we develop barami, it's like that. We often just being patient with our own moods and desires as we practice. We watch the ups and downs of the mind, the highs and the lows. <clears throat> little by little we come to more understanding. But you have to give it time. And the opposite of kanti parami, the opposite of patience, is impatience. We're not willing to give time to anything. Again, that's often a habit we bring into the monastery with us from the world. So now, modern day and age, we're used to technology, deadlines, time. Everything is, we're trying to control the world all the time, control our lives all the time. The result of that is we're often very impatient. If we do put forth any effort into something, we want to see results quickly. We don't want to wait later on in our life or even another life. We want to see the results now. And in the old days, you had to wait for a newspaper to be delivered or you had to go and buy it. Now you just want to get on the internet and quickly get the news. You want to contact someone. Maybe in the old days you had to wait until you visited them, travel to see them. Now you want to be able to phone them or email them immediately, and so on. And that's the way the modern world is now. It's encouraging us to be impatient <clears throat> if we're not mindful and aware of what's going on. We bring that into the monastery. So when we're meditating, you know, often we want to see quick results from our meditation. We want to know what the Buddha taught, we want to have knowledge and wisdom quickly, now, instantly. So we have to work with that, we have to practice the opposite, practice patience where there's impatience. Tolerance where there's intolerance. Now, over and over again the, the Buddha pointed out, you know, the things we have to be patient with, often very ordinary things like weather, Especially in the winter, we get stormy weather, cold weather, wet weather. And you can't avoid it as you're living in the forest, in the mountains. You have to learn to be patient with it. You have to be patient with health issues. You know, our health is never perfect. We catch colds, we get aches and pains and sores and cuts. Sometimes we get more serious illnesses. We have to be patient with that. <clears throat> Something that the Sangha of Ajahn Chah, especially the older generation, you see the value of the way they've practiced from the teachings they received from Ajahn Chah, how to be patient with the discomfort of the body, feelings of heat and cold, pain, hunger, which are just part of our human condition, but we so often try to avoid, cover over through comfort, technology and so on, or through distraction just to get away from anything unpleasant. We try to distract ourselves by seeking out different kinds of pleasures. In the older generation, you see, Ajahn Chah's disciples all have great patience when it comes to physical difficulties and challenges and so on.
one of the first teachings I was given like when I was a young monk probably the worst illness I had was my first year just ordained and it was my first fast I was eating they say dog bark which means go into the village and you just eat the food you get in your bowl on arms round from the village not taking any food when you come back to the monastery it's a very uncertain kind of meal some days even just plain rice some days just a few items to go with the rice and then there was an outbreak of amoebic dysentery in the village <clears throat> so people would pass it to each other through hand contact usually dirty hands touching food so myself and a novice caught amoebic dysentery from the villages from the food and it's one of the first times I thought once I had become a monk it's one of the first times I thought I might die it was so intense the pains the headaches the fevers the diarrhea the dehydration the sangha was very kind they have metta parami they would come and see me every day bring me medication see what I needed but there's not a lot you can do in those situations you just lie there very tired worn out and don't even have a mattress in those days just a very thin mat on a wooden floor with a little pillow and literally just passing the time over and over again hour after hour not doing very much at all other than just being with a feeling of discomfort one of the monks quite sincerely came in first day and said well you know what Ajahn Chah says in these situations you either get better or you die you might call that Panya Barami, Wisdom Barami it's just telling me the truth <coughs> and that's how it was you either get better or you die so my good fortune I got better and all the Sangha practiced in that kind of way didn't always go to hospital didn't always have access to a doctor or the best medical treatment sometimes you did sometimes you didn't the result was you learned great patience like someone was telling me someone visited yet the other day talking about Lumpur Bunchu one of the most senior disciples of Ajahn Chah the doctors he's now very elderly and he's got problems with his thyroid and the doctors want to operate because he's not eating much he's getting very skinny very weak and he said well whether I operate or not I'll die anyway he's developed enough patience enough wisdom through his practice that he's really not bothered by the thought of death and he's not a foolish man he's looked after himself he's taken medicines and had treatments but he's also just displaying the fact that he's not put off by a little bit of discomfort you might also call that upeka barami equanimity or evenness of mind towards the different conditions that we have to experience as human beings and usually in the list of ten that comes at the end equanimity is the aim of our practice equanimity that's with all the other paramis together with wisdom with samadhi 
with sila, with understanding. It's the equanimity of just samadhi alone, so the development of one-pointedness of mind, where you can keep your mind firm and unshakable towards all conditions, not giving in to the hindrances, to doubt, worry, anger, greed, desire, sleepiness, and so on. Then there's the even higher equanimity of upeka towards conditions based on insight, just understanding that all conditions are impermanent and not self. A monk like Lumpur Bunju is practiced to the point where he just knows intuitively with wisdom, with equanimity, that this body doesn't belong to you. If you have that sense of non-attachment towards the body, then there's no suffering, even when it has pain or illness. You just know that's the nature of this body. It's anicca, it's dukkha, it's anatta. Quite naturally, <clears throat> this practice that we're following, you say, you could call it the forest tradition, we're developing all the paramis quite naturally. As long as you're in the monastery practicing, you'll be developing parami. They say parami is only really parami when it's part of your mind, becomes part of your makeup. While we're developing parami, then we're putting effort in, we have to try and sometimes the qualities, the spiritual qualities are there, sometimes they're not, we lose the parami. Sometimes we get angry, sometimes disheartened, discouraged, sometimes we get lazy and so on. The idea is you keep practicing and perfecting these parami, then they actually become part of you. So once they're part of you, they can't be dislodged very easily by conditions. Maybe you have your ups and downs, but there's always something there that keeps you going. Parami. Another thing the Buddha said we have to have patience towards kanti parami is people. And there's the weather, there's health, and there's people. Living with people. And part of our practice is living as community. Even if you go off on retreat, you still have certain relationships with other monks, teachers, preceptors, senior monks, junior monks. You have a relationship towards the lay community who support you. you know, wherever you're living in the world, whether you're living alone or in a monastery with a large community, you know, there's people who support you. We don't have money, we don't store food. So there's always going to be somebody who's having to help share their food with you share the, the material things they have with you. So we have to learn how to be patient with people. Again, that's often a test of our parami when we come into the monastery. You're learning to live as a community, surrounded by people from different backgrounds, different opinions, different knowledge levels, different cultural backgrounds, different habits, different characters, personalities. So at first sometimes that's a little bit of a shock. So you see monks or 
new monks often hide away, they run away. Their parami is not yet very strong, so somebody near them says just a few words that they disagree with already, the anger comes up and they want to be there, worried they might get into an argument. They might have sila barami, they don't display anything, but inwardly anger might come up. Anger is not something you can just discipline like sila, like you can stop yourself abusing someone or speaking harsh words to someone through discipline, through making yourself stop you know, when you're tempted to lose your temper with someone. That's sila barami. But the anger, the ill will that's actually driving that <coughs> is internal and you can't just stop that through an act of will and say, I'm not going to get angry. It's not enough. It might actually lead to some mental problems, trying to repress anger too much. The only way to deal internally with the defilements, the cravings, the attachments we have is through developing wisdom, mindfulness wisdom, seeing them as a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta, developing to the point where you can actually let go of a negative mental state. That takes practice, again, takes patience, takes effort, viriyaparami, takes wisdom, insight, all the paramis working together, takes metta, we have to develop some goodwill towards ourselves, towards others, and so on. But until we've done that, we might have to, in the beginning, just rely on patience, kanti parami, be very patient with the different emotional reactions that come up as we live in a community. You know, we, have our <coughs> we have our preferences. We're always judging, judging other people, what they say, what they do, comparing, looking. You know, we tend to look outwards too much, not looking at ourselves very much. But over time, if we keep practicing, then that changes around and you're not so upset or bothered by other people, you become more bothered by your own mental defilements, your own attachments. You see, they're the real problem. It's not so much other people that are the problem, it's your own wild thoughts, unwise thoughts, uncompassionate thoughts. They're the real cause of suffering. As parami comes up, maybe not only on the outside you become more peaceful and composed, but on the inside you find more inner peace as you start to let go, give up some of the more negative mental states. The greed, the anger, the ill will, the cruelty, and ultimately the delusions. The hardest of all, most Buddhists would agree, is you know, the delusion of self, it's the way we constantly identify with this body, this mind as a self. And we can hear the words of the Buddha, read them, listen to them, listen to explanations of them. There is no self, it's anatta. This body and mind is empty of any kind of ego or lasting essence or self, substance. It's just the words of other wise people, 
and we can remember them and it's not the same as knowing and experiencing for ourselves. That can only come through repeated investigation, looking at the truth, coming to understand as an experience what not-self is. But you'll see the parami help us to get to that point in developing all these parami. Even just practicing sila parami can lead to a, sometimes lead to a direct realization of not-self. Because as you keep the sila, so you do have a strong <coughs> mental state coming up based on craving, maybe you have a strong desire for something that you can't have, say sexual desire or desire for food or some requisite. Or you have some strong aversion come up and you're very angry and you want to shout at somebody or damage something, whatever. But you establish your sila parami so you're not going to act on that desire, then it forces your mind to start looking at the the root cause of that desire. So it brings up panya barami. You start seeing the nature of desire as something that is impermanent. If you're not acting on that desire, well, it will arise, and then it passes away. It's not like you have desire come up all day long, all night. It has its moments, it comes and then it goes. As you're watching and learning from your experience, then the inner wisdom barami starts to come up. So directly from keeping the sealer leads on to a maybe an insight into the impermanence of mental states. What is impermanent, the Buddha said, you can't take a self because it's impermanent. You can't own something that disappears on you or ceases. You know, how many times have we got angry? How many times have we had sexual desire? How many times have we had different forms of worry or sadness? All the different mental states of suffering, they don't last. What doesn't last, you can't really take as a self. You don't really own that, even though you're witnessing it, experiencing it. It will disappear in its own time. So sila parami leads straight on to panya parami sometimes, straight on to the insight into not-self. Little by little, then the Baramis grow up together and they mature. So you get this uh, <clears throat> sense of contentment, of you might say completeness, that comes from the practice. If you give it time, obviously, very few people get quick overnight results in the practice. They might have moments of insight, but for most of us, it's a gradual awakening of the mind. We come to more understanding, we develop the skills, the qualities that help the parami grow, help our mind to grow, open up, see the Dhamma, understand the Dhamma. So if you're willing to do that, you're willing to give it the time, keep practicing, then there's always a chance for enlightenment, 
there's always a chance for the mind to really grow and change for the better, to improve. This is what our teachers have proven to us and shown to us. This is what the Buddha showed to us. Now it's our chance to practice for ourselves. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <laughs>